Looking at our world from a theological perspective, this is the Theology Central Podcast, making Theology Central. Good evening, everyone. It is Friday, December the 16th, 2022. It is currently 8.24 p.m. Central Time, and I'm coming to you live from the Theology Central studio located right here in Abilene, Texas. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful, wouldn't it be absolutely great that every single time you got ready to study the Bible, life would just go, oh, 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 wait, 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 they're studying the Bible, let's leave them alone, right? Oh, wait, wait, they got a Bible in their hand, that's a notebook, that's a pencil, Oh, oh, wait, well, look at that. They have some reference tools. Uh, they're sitting down. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Life, life just says, okay, okay. No interruptions, no problems, no difficulty. Someone is about to study the Bible. Life just hits pause. Life says, time out, time out, everyone. No one can bother them. They are about to study the word of God. Wouldn't it be great that God would intervene and say, oh, wait, 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 that's a Bible in their hand. Okay, no problems, nothing negative can impact them because they are about to study the word. Would not, wouldn't it be wonderful? Wouldn't it be great if it worked out that way? But you know and I know that in life, it does not work that way. In fact, it seems to work the opposite way, yes? You grab your Bible, you get re- you're going to study, you get ready to start reading, and then all of a sudden, boom, a kid breaks an arm. Boom, the house catches on fire. All of a sudden, the car blows up outside. An earthquake hits, a flood, a typhoon, a tsunami, a blizzard. The electricity goes out. The, the, the water stops running. It, it just seems like a comet is coming towards the earth. You, you, you never know what's going to happen. It seems like as soon as you're like, I'm going to study the word of God this week, I'm going to really focus on this Bible study that everything just says, oh, no, 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 you're not going to do that. It, 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 is, it is crazy how that works. But I think it always challenges us to determine how important then is our study of the word of God. How important is it to us? We could ask it, we could ask ourselves this question. What does it take to stop you from meaningful, systematic study of God's word? Like you're going to, you say, okay, it's, it's Friday, it's Saturday, whatever day it's going to be. I'm going to study this today. What does it take to stop you from actually engaging in that study? What does it take? Some, a fight with your spouse, your kids bothering you. Like, what does it take to derail your study completely? Now, I think uh, this has a lot to do with people's personalities. It doesn't take a lot to derail me because once I get frustrated and once I get irritated, I have a tendency not to be able to get it back together, right? Like it, I'll just kind of just, I don't know, you want to call it a pity party? I don't know. I, I'll just, I'll be like, forget it, forget it. I'm just not even going to do that. I'm not even going to do that, and, which is ridiculous because it's the study of God's word. But at the same time, I think we can all agree if you're going to study God's word, you want to be in the right frame of mind. You want, you want to, to be thinking the right way. I, I think we can all agree with that. But it's just crazy how life does not hit pause. Bible study is kind of like, it's that discipline. It's that thing you have to be committed to. No matter what's going on in life, you're just like, I'm going to make this work some way, shape, or form. And I say that because, well, this week, my Bible study exercise for this week has been completely messed up, sidetracked, destroyed. And now here it is Friday evening, and I feel bad about it. 
Uh, so I, so I, I'm mentioning it th- that way. But another reason I'm mentioning it is it's fast approaching. You know what's approaching, right? Come on, what's approaching? Come on, you know, you know. Happy New Year, right? It's fast approaching. It's going to be 2023 and there's going to be excitement in the air. Everyone's going to be excited and everyone's going to be like, I know what I'm going to do. In 2023, I'm going to study this and I'm going to read the Bible and I'm going to do this devotional and I'm going to do this and everybody. And then what happens? Well, it takes about a week, two weeks into the new year. And then all of a sudden, boom, it seems like everything will interrupt that. I just want to challenge you. I just want to encourage you that whatever your goals are for 2023, when it comes to study, the study of God's word, No matter how many times you get distracted, no matter how many times you quote unquote fail to meet a goal, no matter how far behind you fall, just get back up and start where you are. Don't don't allow it to derail you. Just just do what you can. Do what you can whenever you can, as much as you can, getting as much out of it as you can. Don't worry about meeting some arbitrary goal that you set for yourself. The only goal should be, I'm going to do my best to study the Word of God as much as possible in 2023. And if you, if you set some specific goal, the minute you get derailed a little bit, a little bit from it, you have a tendency just to throw in the towel and say, I'm, I'm done. Don't let that happen. Because here I am this week. Remember, Bible study exercise. We're doing a seven-week study on the subject of fear, right? I've given you the thematic method uh, to use. You've come up with your questions. You're working on that. We've been working on the subject of fear using the curriculum that's available to everyone. And so far, it's been really, really good, at least from from my vantage point, from my perception, okay? So let me just remind you. The curriculum started us off in Psalm 33, which I think is one of the absolute most fascinating and interesting passages as it relates to the subject of fear. And it really kind of gave us a kind of a foundation of what's required for us to truly fear God in any meaningful way. If we're going to fear God, these are these things we must accept, we must acknowledge, and we must believe. That was, I I still cannot believe, in fact, I am dumbfounded and confused that that did not generate just like all kinds of conversation. But, but I, I, I don't care if no one else thinks it's important. That study in Psalm 33 was absolute gold. That's, I, I just, not because of what I said, just because the text itself, just, it was so beautifully laid out. So there we went with kind of like, what's, requ- what's the requirement? If we're going to fear God the correct way, if we're going to have the right kind of fear of God, what is required? And Psalm 33 laid it out. It was awesome. It was wonderful. It was great. I, 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 yeah, I just don't understand why nobody else seemed to think so. All right. Then we went from that. Then we went to Romans chapter eight, which was kind of interesting. Romans kind of, uh, Romans chapter eight was, was, I thought very interesting, especially as relating it to the subject of fear. And it kind of said, Romans kind of, Romans eight, kind of said is, kind of told us or kind of said to us, hey, here's the reason you don't need to fear. Here's the reason you don't need to fear. You have no reason to fear the wrong things, right? You have no reason to fear judgment. You have no reason to fear the wrath of God. You have no reason to fear condemnation because of the work of God in salvation. And and I think I I think it gave us reasons not to have the wrong kind of fear, right? So maybe we have the foundation for the right kind of fear and then reasons for not 
uh, having the wrong kind of fear. I, I guess that's a good way to, to look at those two passages, but they were fascinating. Well, this week, the curriculum said, hey, 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 we're going to send you to 1 John chapter 3 and 1 John chapter 4. And when I saw that, I was like, oh, no, 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 not 1 John 3, not 1 John 4. No, 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 because here's the problem. There was massive disagreement in the history of the church. Maybe not so much, uh, there may not be mass disagreement in the, in the current state of the evangelical world, but, but there has been disagreement in how to handle 1 John chapter 1, 2, 3, the whole, the whole epistle. Because most people look at 1 John like, hey, this book proves whether you're saved or you're not saved, and it, and it proves you're saved not by looking to the imputed righteousness of Christ, by looking at what you do and don't do, and if you don't do this and you don't do that, then you were never worth saved, which then in a roundabout way, no matter how many games you try to play with semantics, your salvation has works is involved in your salvation, and if you don't do enough work and do the right kind of work, you're not saved, meaning works are required. And, and therefore, your your entire assurance is not based on what Christ did, but what you're doing or not doing. And even if you say, well, it's not me doing it, it's Christ doing it through me. Well, then everyone should have, everyone should pass the test. And since most people don't pass the test, well, then nobody is saved. Yeah, it, it just leads to so many problems and difficulties. Now, I, as I have stated, and if you go and listen to our series on 1 John, I believe that there's been a lot of mishandling of 1 John. 1 John primarily is a polemic against Gnosticism. And the issue is trying to draw a contrast between salvation in the true God in Jesus Christ versus adopting and uh, and uh, following Gnosticism and Gnostic teaching and Gnostic theology. It's drawing a contrast between, in a sense, true faith, true Christianity versus Gnosticism. And, it, and the test is a little bit different than the way maybe some people perceive it. So, uh, but, I, but for this week, we're not really supposed to be following that path. What we're supposed to do is look at 1 John 3 and 4. And what the curriculum says we're supposed to do is this. All right. Psalm 33, what are the foundations to fear God properly? Romans 8, what are the, the what, what can you, uh, how, can, how, how should we state Romans 8? What should, what should keep you from the wrong kind of fear? What should give you the, the, the peace, the confidence, and the hope that keeps you from the wrong kind of fear? Romans kind of 8 says, here's what will keep you from the wrong kind of fear. According to the curriculum, what we're supposed to be looking at this week, and I apologize again that it's Friday, but everything has gone wrong this week. Everything has gone wrong. What they want us to do this week in session three is to do this. What should what should i'm going to i'm going to say it this way what should we put in the place of fear what should replace the wrong kind of fear right we we have the foundation we should, we have what should keep us from the wrong kind of fear but what what should we put in place of fear it's one thing to say okay okay here's the thing that will keep me from having the wrong kind of fear but what should we put in its place like if you've ever had the wrong kind of fear, what 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 should be put in its place? That's kind of what the curriculum wants us to look at. And it wants us to try to find this answer in 1 John 3 and 4. Now, again, I, I'm not a fan of this because it just raises so many questions, but we're going to just see what the curriculum has to do. So what we're going to do for the next maybe 30 minutes, 45 minutes, is we're going to just look at the curriculum and they entitle session three, love in place of fear. 
Now, the fear here is the wrong kind of fear, obviously, right? They're not saying, hey, don't, we already know we're, we, that the beginning of wisdom and the beginning of knowledge is the fear of the Lord, the right kind of fear, a reverence, a respect, and all. And we, we've already seen in this study the areas of life where you are to demonstrate the right kind of fear, reverence, respect, and awe. And we saw this. We saw that it's a child to parent, a wife to husband, uh, us to to government, uh, masters to slaves, us to God. There's all these areas of life where we need to have the right kind of fear. So this is not saying, hey, replace the right kind of fear with love. No, 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 no. This is saying the wrong kind of fear. The wrong kind of fear must be what we put in its place is love. Now, in a roundabout way, Romans 8 kind of told us what to put in place of fear, but I'm just going to look at Romans 8 as, hey, this will keep you from the wrong kind of fear. But just because you're kept from the wrong kind of fear is not sufficient. You now to put, now to put something positive in its place. This is a very important uh, about sanctification or about living the Christian life. The Christian life is never, hey, just stop doing this. Don't do this. Don't do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. Put, in a sense, put that away. It's always stop doing it. Put this away. But you're always to replace the, quote unquote, the negative, the sinful, the bad with something positive. Hate is replaced with love, right? Uh, bitterness with forgiveness. Fear or, or um, unhappiness with, with joy. That kind of thing, you know, uh, greed with being selfless instead of selfish, on and on and on and on and on. Instead of narcissism, you put others before yourself. You're always a replace. It's not just I stop doing all the quote unquote the bad. No, 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 no. You replace the bad with the positive. Now, we never come anywhere close to doing this. And it's, it's, a, it's we have to constantly rely on the imputed righteousness of Christ. But it's a very important concept. If all you do is, quote unquote, stop the bad, if all you, now this is very important, if all you do is stop the bad, stop the sin, stop the wrong thing, even, I mean, you're never going to do it perfectly. But if you put forth much effort that you're going to stop all of the bad, but you don't replace it with the positive characteristics and the positive attribute, all you will become is self-righteous, prideful, arrogant, condemning, bitter, unhappy, rude, and really just all, all around, all the way around, just kind of a really disgusting kind of person. You're, you're just going to be miserable. It's, 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 you, you may, you may look like, well, he doesn't commit that sin. He doesn't commit that sin. Yeah. And he's the biggest jerk in the history of humankind. You have to replace just the, the, I'm not going to do this with something else. Well, what they want you to do is, Hey, you had that wrong kind of fear. You got to put something in its place which is kind of interesting. Romans 8 was like, hey, 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 this will keep you from the wrong kind of fear. And Psalm 33 was like, here's the foundation so that you can have the right kind of fear. Now, here we go. Session three, the title. Love in place of fear. The curriculum is calling for us to replace the wrong kind of fear. Again, I'm, let me stress that the wrong kind of fear with love, right? Here is the point, according to the curriculum. There is no room for fear when God's love 
is in us. So we replace. So this is this seems to be the concept here. I will not have the wrong kind of fear if I have the right understanding of God's love. This is not, hey, it seems interesting that the idea here is not not really focusing on my love for others, but it's understanding God's love in me. So is it, do I, now this can be very, we got to really consider this. Is the key, I, I can avoid the wrong kind of fear if I love others the right way. Now, if you go to 1 John, you could think that that's the emphasis, especially in the text that they give us. But would that, if I have the right kind of love for people, would that give me, would that remove the wrong kind of fear? Or is this about understanding God's love for me? Which direction are they going to go here? We'll see. The passage of scripture is 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. So let's just dig in and we'll see where we can go. I know a lot of concepts I'm throwing at you tonight, just having, it's, it's, uh, we're so far behind that I always hate these, these, these episodes always cr- drive me crazy. It's Friday. We, this is, we, we're, we're almost done with an entire week of Bible study, right? We're done with session three. Next week, we're up to session four. And look how little we've done on this, on this session. We've, now, you've been busy, hopefully, on your thematic method. But when I get to here, I'm like, okay, I've got to talk about every concept. But here we go. Let, we're going we're gonna to do our best to, to give us something tonight. All right, here, 1 John chapter 3. I'm going to read everything they give us, even though I think some of this can lead to great distraction. We'll still read it. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. 1 John chapter 3, verse 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Now, I think the primary focus here is contrasting how we should understand loving people versus the Gnostic view. The Gnostic view is, you know, the flesh, the material, right? That's all, that's all sinful. That's uh, wicked. That's ungodly. So they had kind of a bizarre way of thinking about loving people or, or not even really needing to love people or not even really caring or only loving people who had the right gnosis, the right knowledge, the right, the right, the right kind of understanding. It, it, it had a, it had a broken understanding of love. And John wants the people to know, Hey, that Gnosticism out there, that's going to give you the wrong concept of love. You need the right kind of uh, understanding of love. But, but, but see, note clearly that, see, this is why I don't understand why they went with 1 John. Because that seems to indicate if we go with their theme, well, wait a minute, the way, I mean, if, if you go with their way of thinking, and this is what makes me a little nervous, okay, hey, the world is going to hate you. That could create fear. That could create anxiety. That can create worry. Now, are they telling me the way to remove that, what I need to replace that fear and anxiety with is we know that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brethren abideth in death. Am I, am I supposed to, the way I get rid of the wrong kind of fear is loving other people? I don't, we'll see where they go with this. Verse 15 Whoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. 
verse 17. But whoso hath the world's good and shut and seeth his brother hath need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. Now, if I go with the title of this and I just go with that scripture, it almost seems like that they are saying, hey, you want to, you have the wrong kind of fear? You can replace the wrong kind of fear with love. And what you do is you love other people the right kind of way. And if you love people the right kind of way, then the wrong kind of fear will be replaced. Is that, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. Let's go. The next part passage I want us to look at is in the same epistle, 1 John chapter 4 now, verses 14 through 18. 1 John chapter 4, verses 14 through 18. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in he and God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. Herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, this seems to, this passage seems to work a little bit better, all right? So let's go through this, all right? So the, so the concept here is how can we replace the wrong kind of love? This is what the, the curriculum wants us to focus on. Well, let, now let's think of it through, let's think that through with this passage of scripture and it makes a little bit more sense. First John 4, 14, let's read this again, all right? And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God and God in him. All right. So we, we, this is, we've believed in Jesus Christ. And, and we, we know that he has been sent as the savior of the world. We have known and believed the love of God hath to us because we believe in Jesus Christ. God is love. We understand that we dwell in him. He dwells in us. Now look at verse, the next verse, verse 17. Herein is love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment. How can I have boldness in the day of judgment? Because of God's love sending his son to die for me as my savior. And of course, his perfect righteousness is given to me. And then we see this because as he is, so are we in this world. Now, some people will try to argue that's referring to practical righteousness. I disagree because I'll never be as he is. I'll never be as Christ is in this world. I will always be a poor representation of him. But in this world, I have his imputed righteousness. So in this world, I am as he is positionally because of an imputed righteousness. And then here's the key verse. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. Now this seems to be saying to me that the fear here, the wrong kind of fear or the fear that this that we are replacing with love is that we are replacing the fear of condemnation, the fear of judgment, the fear of wrath, the fear of guilt, shame, embarrassment because of our sin. The wrong kind of fear because of our sin, and we replace that kind of fear with 
the love of God because we know he has loved us because of sending his son and that we are saved in a sense. And because we are saved, therefore, fear, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. He that, fear, he, that, he that feareth is not made perfect in love. I think that this is the idea that we have this, you can have this, I'm going to call it the wrong kind of fear for a Christian. We should not have this wrong kind of fear because Jesus is our savior. He died for us and we are saved by his imputed righteousness, not by what we do or don't do. Therefore, there is now no, that fear is gone. We replace that kind of fear with the love of God in us. And that's what we focus on. That, that to me has to be the direction. I have no idea what the curriculum is about to do. It took 24 minutes just to get through the scriptures, but that's okay. All right, let's read the curriculum and see what where they go with this. I am very curious. I think they're going to go in a different direction. They start off with this, and I quote, One of my favorite holidays is Thanksgiving. Yes, I use the time to reflect on all of God's blessings, but I love Thanksgiving for a second reason, the food. Thanksgiving Day is the day I set aside thoughts of carbs and calories. I start the day off with the most glorious of sausage balls. Then I make my way to lunch with all the fixings. Finally, I finish the day off with a slightly smaller dinner plate. The average person consumes over 3,000 calories on Thanksgiving Day, and I believe it. If I if a well-meaning relative asked me to go to dinner that evening, I'm, I'd surely decline. The reason is simple and obvious. I'm full. I don't have room for anything else. The truth is not just true when it comes to food. It is true when it comes to our relationship with God. When we are full of the truth and love of God, there is no room for fear. We'll see this in 1 John when we live fully, when we live fully of the love of God, we can rest in who he is and walk confidently with no fear. All right, so what they seem to be saying is, hey, we can have this wrong kind of fear. Now, they don't specifically say what this wrong kind of fear is about, but it can be, we, it will be gone if we'll be filled, there are two concepts, with truth and the love of God. With God's truth and God's love, then fear will be replaced. Fear will be put away. All right, again, it's just a strange, it's a strange concept that they're trying, they, 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 they went to first John to try to demonstrate. And here's the reason why. And I really want you to think about this. Think of how much, I mean, if anyone is honest with themselves, if you've gone to any church, if you listen to sermons online and they're like, we're about to begin a series on first John. The minute they say that, if you know anything about first John and you know about, there's about a 99.9% possibility how they're going to handle the text. I, I don't know about you. But I think any reasonable, rational, honest, truthful person who can actually be honest with themselves will be like, oh, no, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble, because this is how they're going to approach First John. It's a test to prove you're saved. And if anyone in that church is even remotely honest, they would get to the end of the book and be like, well, then I'm done. I'm not saved. I'm not saved. So then here's what they do. They give the test saying, here's the test. You have to do this. You have to do this. You have to do this. Have to do this. And they make it sound so dogmatic and they make it sound so convincing. And then somewhere in the test, they'll say, but 
However, you're still going to sin. You're not going to do it perfectly. So, so somehow your imperfect obedience to these tests, your, your failure of these tests is still sufficient to give you assurance because now you don't actually have to pull it off perfectly. You just have to somehow subjectively go in the right direction. It's just the subjective trajectory of your life that supposedly will prove that you passed the test. So everyone, here's the test, pats themselves on the back. I've passed the test. I'm godly. And so therefore, they don't have any fear, but they don't have any fear, not based on God's love, but it becomes based on what they think they're doing or not doing in their life. In other words, they replace fear of judgment, of wrath, of condemnation with almost a self-righteousness, which I think is problematic. So it's interesting that they've gone to this text. And, and obviously, 1 John, it's got to be, it's got to be salvific. It's got, this has to be soteriological in some way. In other words, we, the love here has to be God's love in us, towards us, in relationship to salvation. And the fear here has to be the fear somehow of judgment, of condemnation. That's the only thing that makes sense. I don't know if we can extend this beyond those concepts. Let's see what they're going to do. They quote 1 John 3, 13 through 18, which we've already read. I'll just read it one more time because guess what? It doesn't hurt us. Uh, Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. We know that uh, we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. He that loveth not his brother abideth in death. Whosoever hateth his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer hath no murderer hath eternal life abiding in him. And just remember, you I, I don't know how that's supposed to bring us any comfort. And you say, Well, I've never murdered anyone. But remember, the the Jesus Jesus calls for not just an external obedience, that you can literally murder someone internally. You can murder them in your desire, your motive, your thoughts. And so you could still be a murderer. So I, I, you know, I, and I think half the people listening to a sermon on this would have to go, man, I think I've murdered about 50 people in the last six months, but okay. All right, here we go. Hereby perceive we the love of God because he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whosoever hate half this world's good and seeth his brother have need and shutteth up his bowels of compassion for him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And again, I don't know how this is supposed to somehow help me with fear because this should scare you to death because you have failed a good portion of this. But that's, let's see what they have to say. The Apostle John wrote this letter from the city of Ephesus. In it, he focused on our intimacy and closeness to Jesus. Love was a central truth in John's life and teaching and the and in the gospel he wrote he even referred to himself as the one of his oh as let me read this again love was a central truth in john's life and teaching and in the gospel he wrote and and in the gospel he wrote he even referred to himself as the one of his disciples whom jesus loved john 13:23 this was no statement of pride but it reflects where his security was found Security is found in the one who loves you, and the one that loved John was the king of the universe. All right, that sounds pretty good. In this passage, John painted a clear picture of what it looks like 
when we live in the love of Jesus and show it to others. Earlier in verse 12, he reminded us of the command uh, of the command he hath heard from Jesus, love one another. When we love like Jesus, we will experience the world's hatred just as Jesus did. The unconditional love we're called to display runs in direct opposition to the ways of the world. Okay. Maybe. All right. I, I, I think it's true that if we love people the way we were supposed to, if we love people because we're supposed to even love our enemy, if we really love people the way we were supposed to, it would run completely contrary to the world. I just think that what we see throughout all of Christianity is that we love ourselves and that we don't love people and we don't love our enemy and we attack people and we gossip and we slander and we call them names and we don't turn the other cheek and, and on and on. We see the complete and utter failure of this, which again, what would tell me first John then would not remove fear from me. It would scare me to death because, because it seems to indicate, well, then I'm not saved and which is how most people teach the book. So where does, where does, you know, Hey, fear will go away if you love God and you love others. In other words, if you do the right thing, then you don't have anything to fear. That's, that to me is problematic. Let's see where they go here. Some might wonder why people would be opposed to displays of love, especially an unconditional love that loves the individual no matter what. The light of such love exposes the darkness of the world that does not love. Like cockroaches that scatter when the light is turned on, living as children of light exposes the sins of others. John has already told his readers, and in this the children of God are manifest, and the children of the devil, whosoever doeth not righteous is righteousness is not of God, neither he that loveth not his brethren. First uh, John 3.10. When we love like Jesus, we will be opposed. Now, again, they just focus on, hey, if you love God, you're going to be opposed, but he just says, skip that. Hey, please note, this is how it's made manifest that we're the children of God. Whoever doeth not righteousness is not of God. Well, immediately that should bring fear. I, I, it's just weird they're using this in this context. If I read that, that should scare everyone. Wait a minute. If I don't do righteousness, I'm not of God. How much righteousness must I do to be of God? Now, what people will typically do, no, it's just the general trajectory of your life. As long as you're going in the direction of righteousness, it's sufficient. So we water this down so that we supposedly can pass it. But even how, how do you judge that? The trajectory? Well, we, we judge the trajectory by looking at only specific areas. Hey, in this area, in this area, in this area, I seem to be getting more righteous. But what about the 5,000 other things you're doing where you're sinning and you're sinning and you're sinning and you're sinning? How? I, I, I don't know. This, why are they using this passage? I do not know. Of all the things that they could go to, I, I don't know. But they go on. Picture an individual who worked in a toxic work environment with an unreasonable demand and harsh supervisors. After years of enduring this, he lands a position with the new company. He is paid well, led by supportive managers, and enjoys the work. But when he meets up with his old co-workers over dinner, the talk turns to how much they hate their work and their boss. Our individual counters with how much he likes his new supervisor and working conditions. Envy and resentment can rise in the rest of the group. Contempt surfaces because the individual's new job exposes everything the others don't have. All right, so now what they're trying to say is see if we have the right kind of love. They're trying to explain why the world would hate us for the right kind of love. 
All right. I'm all for them trying to explain that. But remember, the according to this curriculum, what they're trying to show us is how love replaces fear. So I, I, I don't know how this replaces fear yet. Let, let, let's see where this goes. Let's see where this goes. The world's negative reaction to our love and life in Christ should not deter us in showing love. If this love resides in our hearts, not only will we not hesitate in expressing love in deed and in truth, but we will even lay down our lives for the brethren. The love of Christ and the example he set for us leads us to go and do likewise. Such selfish, selfless, and sacrificial love will cause some tension and friction with the world, but we are still called to love. All right. None of that really helps us. That's, that doesn't help us in any way, shape, or form. That doesn't help me at all. all right. Basically, this, they're, they're, they're reverting back to this concept that if you love, you won't. So I guess we could ask ourselves this question. Maybe we'll try it this way. Maybe we'll try it this way. Oh, see, this is where I need, I need an audience. This is where I need an audience. If, see, if I was at my church and everybody was there, I'd be like, okay, guys, we've got to figure this out. Because whenever, whenever I go through curriculum or read a, a Christian book, what I always try to do, no matter how much I may initially disagree, is always at least try to consider the argument to the best of my ability. So I'm just going to, I'm going to kind of just extrapolate from what they gave us to try to come up with kind of the thesis or the theory, the hypothesis they're giving us and see if, if we can do something with it. So let's take, because what they're focusing on is that the world is going to hate us, right? And that, that's the, the first part of our text here. First John chapter three, verse 13. Marvel not, my brethren, if the world hate you. So let's, let's go with this. Let's go with the concept, because I think the Bible seems to bear this out, that if we are Christians seeking to live for God, we are going to find ourselves in direct opposition to the world. It's going to hate us, and at times it may seek to persecute us. All right? We do know from Scripture the way we are to respond to this is not by hopping on Twitter or social media and calling them names and mocking and making fun and, and doing all the nonsense Christians find themselves doing in 2022. We know that how we are to respond to our enemy is we are to love them. We are to turn the other cheek. We are to seek to bless them, pray for them, do good to them. We, we are to love them like Christ loves us who are sinners. We are sinners. We don't deserve anything. Christ should be seeking our judgment, condemnation, and destruction, but no, he laid down his life. He died for us. So we are to show that kind of love even to our enemy. Now, here's the question. Obviously, the hatred of the world, obviously persecution could strike fear in your heart and my heart. I, I think we can all agree it can. I mean, look at what happened to Peter. When he, he was like, oh, no, oh, no, 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 I don't know him. I don't know him because he was scared. There was fear. There was intimidation. There's no way to get around that. He was. And we all can find ourselves in a situation where there is fear and intimidation. So, so let, we'll ask this question. And someone may have asked this in their thematic study. But if you haven't, this is a question we could pursue. Does the love for others, the right kind of love, a trying to pursue a godlike love for others, for your enemies, having love for your enemy, does that remove 
fear and intimidation. If you're full of love for your enemy, does that replace fear and intimidation? We, 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 we're, we're clearly going in a different direction than was than I originally thought, but that's okay. Let's go in this direction. Let's, let's run with it. Let's run with it. Okay. Uh, that, that's, that's, we may not get any further, but that's okay. Let's run with this. I want you to think of a situation. Now I'm going to use an extreme. I'm going to use an extreme illustration here. Extreme. I mean, just crazy extreme. This coming Sunday, you're sitting in the sanctuary. You're there with your family. All of a sudden, you hear somewhere in the building, pop, pop, pop. You're like, what, what was that? What was that? All of a sudden, people are startled. All of a sudden, you hear someone scream out, right? All of a sudden, you start, you hear chaos. And all of a sudden, someone burst into the, uh, the back doors of the sanctuary. And you hear, now you can hear what that pop was. It's gunshot, pop. Pop! And it, it, it goes off. And you hear someone else scream. And you look back and you see someone fall because they've been shot. And let's say that person, instead of just going on a just a absolute shooting spree, he in a sense begins to take hostages. He's going to take the rest of the people in the sanctuary hostage. Now, there you are with your family. You're there with your daughters. You're there with your spouse. Now, at that point, anyone, we, we would acknowledge that person is the enemy. He has a gun. He's already killed people. He's intruded. He's, he's invaded, in a sense, your place of worship, this time of, of trying to worship and learn about God. He's there with a gun. He intends to harm people. He's holding people hostage. Maybe he's hitting people. He's threatening people. At that point, that is your enemy in the most real way possible. Now, I'm because I'm, I'm, this is a real question. If I have love for my enemy... If I love my enemy, and I'm gonna and I and I'm gonna resist not evil. I'm gonna uh, turn the other cheek. I'm gonna bless those who would persecute me. I love that person. Now, one, I don't even know if I'm gonna have love for. I'm just gonna be honest with you. Okay, I'm not even gonna pretend. I'm not even gonna pretend here. This is why the whole love test. I think the love test works great in theory. Like when people say, "If you love others, then you prove you're saved." Yeah, and 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 it's it's the most generic. Like you know, well, you 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 don't hate them. So no, this would be the real test to it. Remember, it's the same concept. Remember the rich young ruler. Hey, you know, do you do you really love others? Do you really love others as you love yourself? Well, then sell everything you have and give it give it to the poor. And then he couldn't do it. He could he claimed he could love others until he's got gets put to the test. It's easy to say that I love my enemy. Oh, it's so easy to say that until I'm faced with my enemy who wants to harm and is possibly going to kill. But at that moment. At that moment, I'm, I'm, this is completely theoretical, I know. And I'm not saying it's perfect illustration, but I really want us to challenge this because the, it, the curriculum doesn't really push this as far as, they just hint at it and then they move on, which is what drives me crazy about a lot of the things in First John is how Christians always like, here's the test, see? Now, as long as you're going in the general direction and no one stops to really go, no, let's really put this to the test. Here would be a good test. Do you love others? They claim if you truly love others, Right? If you truly love others, then the fear is going to be gone. Right? It's going to replace fear. Well, the only fear this could be referring to is in 1 John 3 is the hatred of the world. Now, here is someone who hates you. They possibly are about to kill you or someone in your family. Are you going to be overcome with fear because now you love them? 
Well, one, I don't think I'm going to love them. But even if I was to love them, I don't know. Would, would my fear go away? If Peter would have loved those people who were like, hey, 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 aren't you with Jesus? Aren't you with Jesus? Hey, 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 we know you. No, 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 no. I never, if, if he truly would have loved him, would he have been like, yes, I'm with Jesus. And I want you to know that I love my enemy and I'm willing. No, he was like, I don't, I don't know who Jesus is. And I don't want nothing to do with any of you. All right. Like what, what happened? So does the love of others remove fear? I, I'm, I'm just looking, I'm looking around an empty room going, Hey, you over there. Like I'm looking for someone in the room to stand up going, no, I know. Or raise their hand and go, oh, well, I don't know. I don't know. This is a very real question. This is a very real question. And I don't have an answer. One immediately. I know I just fell. Look in that situation. I'm just, look, I'm just going to, I'm going to be brutally honest. I'm going to be brutally honest. Okay. I'm going to be brutally honest. In that situation, I'm sorry. I'm not going to think I need to love that person that's got that gun up there. I need to turn the other cheek. I need to love my enemy. Now, I know other people say, well, no, no, no. You don't have to do that in this situation. And we'll make 900 excuses. Jesus doesn't make the, when, when the law is given, it's, it doesn't give us 37 exceptions to get out of it right? That's why the law always condemns us. And that's why our only hope is in the imputed righteousness of Christ. But in this particular situation, I'm just going to be brutally honest. I don't care about loving that person. I don't care about loving them. I don't care about their salvation. I don't care about anything. What I want to do is disarm them and neutralize the threat by any means possible. That's how I'm going to think. So I, I, I don't know. I don't, I'm not going to say, well, I love them. I love them. I love them, and now I have no fear. Does loving others remove fear? I don't know. And now that's an extreme situation. That's an extreme situation. Let's try another one. Let's try another one. Have you ever been in a workplace where you just absolutely are intimidated? There, there's someone there in some form of authority that just constantly seems to harass you, and I'm not saying harass you like in a sexual way, but that would be illegal, but they just seem to be bothering you. They're almost like a bully. They always just, every time you have an encounter with them, you almost walk away shaking and, and just filled with anxiety and, and worry. And you see them coming. You could just feel your blood pressure starting to increase. If you love them the way you're supposed to, does that remove that anxiety and that fear and that worry? When I, when I was in the military, the only good thing about being in the military is I always knew that if I stayed at one duty station, like for a long time, because my entire military career basically was only two duty stations, which is absolutely crazy. It could have almost been just one, but okay. I always knew that, okay, everyone else typically leaves in like every two years. They, they're gone, they're gone, they're gone. So I always knew that no matter how much this person hated me, how, how, how horrible they made my life, that all I have to do is wait them out. And then I'm going to be like, peace out. Everything you thought, everything, it doesn't matter. I'm still here. I'm still standing. You didn't get rid of me. Whatever. You, you tried to make my life miserable. You're gone. I'm still here. And everything you told me to do, I'm never going to do again. Okay. All right. Maybe not the right attitude, but you get the, you get the point. But there was this one commander. Oh my goodness gracious. 
He just purposely, typically the commanders didn't come looking at what I was doing, but because, I mean, I was kind of this, but he would come and just get involved and just start like, what about this? And what I just, he just would almost just make a special trip. And it just, it was so nerve wracking, so much anxiety. And it was just, and he would just find something for you to do meaningful just to make you stay late. He would, he would like, well, you're not going home until this is done. It was like, it was almost like a bully just looking to flaunt their power it was, it was horrible. I could not stand this individual. And I'm just being honest. And guess what? I never viewed that person the way I was supposed to. I'm supposed to love that person. I'm supposed to love my enemy. I didn't. I viewed them as my enemy. And you know what I wanted them? I wanted them to PCS. I wanted them to get orders. I wanted them to get as far away from the base that I was at because I never wanted to see them ever again. Now, if I would have loved them the correct way, would that have removed fear and anxiety and worry and intimidation? I don't know. Now, the curriculum is not explicitly leading us in that direction, but it's clearly hinting at that. Because the they're saying, in fact, let me go back and read that last part here again. Let me read that last part again. Because I think, I think that they're clearly insinuating it. They're clearly insinuating it. If I can open up my iPad here. All right, here we go. Uh, well, okay. They're actually, all right. They kind of go in two different directions here. They're saying that our love will actually cause conflict. They're saying our love will cause conflict. Um, let me let me see if I can go back because they had this statement. They had this statement here. If I can find it. Um, If I can find the statement where they have this. If I can find it. Well, I guess their uh, main, main focus here, their main focus here is that when we love the right way, we're going to be oppo- oppo- opposed. But, but the whole point of this, of this study is supposed to be, well, wait a minute. Um, there's no room. In fact, here's the point. I'll read it. There is no room for fear when God's love is in us. So they, they want us to say that, hey, when we're full of God's love, in fact, if I go back, if I think, if I remember right where they said it, um, yeah, here we go. The truth is not just for uh, food journeys. It is true when it comes to our relationship with God. When we are full of truth and love of God, there is no room for fear. Well, immediately when they, we look at the text they give us, they give us the text that the world is going to hate us. Now, what they try to do is explain why the world's going to hate us. And their argument is when we love the way we're supposed to, the world's going to hate us because of that love. But they've already made the claim that when we do love the correct way, fear will be pushed aside. We won't have fear if we love. So in other words, we're going to love the right way and that's going to make the world hate us, but we will not fear them because we have love for them. And my question is, I don't know. I, I don't know if that works in any meaningful way. First, I don't think we ever truly love the way we're supposed. We can talk all day. Love proves that I'm saved. If love proves you're saved, it is the most subjective, meaningless test I've ever seen in my life because we only look for the most shallow, surface ways in which we supposedly love people. And in many cases, I've said it so many times, so much of our love for others is the most selfish thing on the history of the planet. We, we love people because of what we get from them. If you really want to know if you love someone, love someone 
who doesn't give you anything other, they give you their hate, they give you their, they, they despise you, they reject you, they, they, they loathe you, they attack you, they gossip you, they, they gossip about you, they slander you, love them. It's easy to say, look, 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 I'm proving I'm saved. I love this person. Of course you do, because they love you back and they, they give you a sense of security. Or it, our love is so corrupted all the time. But when we really put this to the test, and I, I, know, I know the curriculum wants us to see that loving others will create the opposition, but they've also demonstrated that what it's supposed to show us is that by loving them, it, where fear is going to be pushed aside. In other words, we replace fear with love. And the first thing that we should possibly fear, according to this text, would be the hatred of the world. Now, why is the world going to hate us? Because we love. So if we love, they're going to hate us. But because we love, we shouldn't have fear. And I just don't know how that works. We're at 52 minutes. We're not even going to be able to get to the next part. I wanted to get to the first John 4 passage, but now I'm now I'm absolutely consumed with this. Now I'm now I'm going to be I'm going to be up all night thinking this through. How does this work? If I truly love people the right way, which I never do, but let's just say it's possible for at least five minutes, would that remove fear? Typically, when there's someone who I who who creates that sense of fear, or creates that sense of intimidation, I think that I I, I say I, I don't really know how to test this because typically I'm not going to view them the right way. I'm going to view them as my enemy, and it's easy to say love your enemy. Oh man, that's so easy to say. Yeah, love your enemy. Yeah, you love your enemy. Love your enemy. Yeah, you can do it when they're when they're a hundred miles away or when they're in the other side of the world and they're just like they're like. Love your enemy. So those politicians who go again, make sure you show love for them in the way you talk about them. That's so easy. They're somewhere else. Love your enemy who's right there looking you in the face, slapping you in the face, calling you names, lying about you, gossiping and trying to hurt you, destroy you, hurt your career or destroy your family. All of a sudden you're like, nope, forget love, forget turning the other cheek. I just, I just don't know. I, I can think of another example. I, I grew up in Buffalo Gap, Texas. I loved growing up in Buffalo Gap, Texas, because I, in my mind, because I'm always off in fantasy world. Um, I, I, because I read Tom Sawyer, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. I read that book nine million times growing up, and for me, I know he's in like Missouri, near the Mississippi River. But for me, I was I uh, I was there. Like Buffalo Gap became there, even though we didn't have a Mississippi River. It just and my I just envisioned the way I would read the book. I would envision it as this town that I lived in, and and so I it just I, I was probably always somewhere else walking around. But there were times that the real world would kind of destroy my little fantasy. Here's what happened when we first moved there. When we first moved there. And this is insane, but this is the reality. We pulled up on the day where we're going to move in. And there was a dog chained to the tree. The dog had clearly been beaten. I mean, it was horrible. You could see there was kind of blood on it. And the dog, if you got any, if anyone got within 
I don't know, anywhere close to that dog, it would try to kill you. So we're like, what are we going to do? What we're going to do? My, my, there were, there was thoughts of shooting it. There was, all, I, there was all kinds of discussion going on. I, I, I just stopped listening to everyone and I walked up to the dog. I know foolish. I was a kid. I didn't care. I'm like, this dog is hurt. Everyone's scared of it. I, 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 I can't, I can't imagine seeing this dog hurt. I can't. And so there, in this particular case, I'm not saying this works perfectly. My love for that dog, even though I didn't know the dog, but I have such a love for animals, it, it overwhelmed, it, it, it overcame any fear or intimidation of the dog. I'm not saying this is wise. I'm not saying this is smart, but I walked up to the dog. I walked up slowly. I'm like, I'm sorry. And I just kept saying, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I walked up. And as I got close, the dog just laid down. I sat down in front of the dog and we just sat there and talked for a while. Finally, I was able to take the chain off. I was able to try to wash off his wounds, got him some food. We called him Butch. Became my best friend. Became my best friend. Now, it, it was not always a good thing because one time uh, we were at the little corner, the store there called Stewart's Grocery. Uh, had kind of, it was just, you'd have to see it. It was a cool, a cool place. It, again, it looked like something from like the 1940s. And um, it was cool, an awesome place. And um, we came out and some kid was trying to steal my brother's bike. And now, of course, now here, I don't show love for the kid. I'm like, give me the bike back and we're going to fight, right? So we're like, we're going to go to, it's called the Old Settlers Ground where they had the Old Settlers reunion. It's great. Again, you'd have to just see the town. It's like something out of a book, right? So we go to this place, there are all these big oak trees and we're like, we're going to fight, right? Because you tried to steal my brother's bike. No, obviously love for the, I love the dog more than obviously love a kid who's trying to steal my brother's bike. We got the bike back. So there was no reason to fight, but I'm going to fight to prove some point. Well, we get there and he takes one swing at me and boom, the, my dog tries to kill the kid. He goes, it's full blown. Like I thought he's going to literally end the kid's life. And, um, so when I realized, man, Butch has got my back. So it was me and Butch, me and Butch, me and Butch, me and Butch. Great things. Well, somewhere down the street, someone's chickens started dying or being killed or disappearing. And the, the thought was by this neighbor was it's your dog. And it got pretty serious because one day I'm riding my bike, Butch running alongside of me. Cause he always went everywhere I went. And all of a sudden the guy steps out in the middle of the street, points a rifle at me, says, I'm going to kill you and your dog because he's killing my chickens. And I'm like, Oh my goodness. What is going on? What is going on now? Again, I don't show love for the person. None. I'm worried about my dog. Now I'm standing. So I stand in front of my dog and like, no, 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 you're going to have to kill me. You're not going to kill my dog. And so then I, I run back home. Now at that point, I'm scared of the person. I'm frightened, scared. So I don't have any love for the person. I have love for my dog. I'm willing to die for my dog, not for the person. So see, this is kind of a, I guess my illustration here is my love for my dog. Let me overcome fear. (laughs) But it's kind of twisted that I don't think I've ever demonstrated maybe that kind of love towards a person. But I loved my dog. All right. Well, then my dad finds out what's going on. And then he's pulling out every gun in the world and he's loading them up. And then it's like it's going to be like, you know, the shootout at the OK Corral right there in Buffalo Gap. And they're like they're yelling and screaming. It's it's just a horrible, horrible situation. And well, nothing came out of that except what, 24 to, it was 24, maybe 48, 72 hours later, my dog was dead. 
someone shot it and killed it. And guess what? I was not overcome with love for neighbor. I wanted my neighbor to die. Because I did not love my enemy. Now, I was still scared of the man. I was scared to death of the man. So I didn't. Now, so I could argue I didn't have love for the person because I didn't have love for the person. Therefore, I had fear of the person. If I would have loved that person the way the Bible calls me to love them, I'm supposed to love my enemy. And clearly I did. I never did in any way, shape, or form. Would, would, would my fear of the person have gone away? I had no fear for the dog because I loved the, I loved the dog even though I didn't know its name or anything about it. And I was willing to die for the dog. So does that, does that prove it in some way, shape, or form? Now, the, old, the, the, the study says that there is no room for fear for those uh, for who, when God's love is in us. And how, is God's love, how do we know God's love is in us? Because we love others. So, and if we love others, the world's going to hate us. But they may hate us. And here's the reason they're going to hate us, because our love exposes their lack of love, according to the curriculum. But then, full circle, because I love them, I won't be afraid of the world's hatred. I won't be afraid. Well, that sounds so good theoretical. And put it in a nice little study guide and everyone in the small group will say, amen. I love people the way I'm supposed to. Yeah, until someone breaks into the house in the middle of the small group meeting and ready to start killing or abusing people. I, I'm, I'm One, you're going to be scared. And two, I doubt you're going to show love. So does what does what is the impact of love? Here's, here, I'll, well, I'll state it this way. This is how I will end. I'm going to end it in a question. How does your love for others impact the fear sometimes caused by others? Does it have any measurable, meaningful impact? And should it? Now, I do believe that as a Christian, I am supposed to love my enemy and I'm supposed to love others. I believe it's a command. I believe I must do it. I must love others the right way. But I know this. I never have loved people the way I'm supposed to, and I never will. But Christ loved others the right way. And in him, his love for others is imputed to my account. So I do love others positionally. Practically, I always fall short. And how does that lack of love for others create a situation where I fear others? Is my fear of others, intimidation of others, directly related to a lack of right love for others? That's a question I've never considered or even pondered until tonight, looking at the curriculum. Love to get your thoughts on this. You can email me, news if at yahoo.com news if at yahoo.com that's news if at yahoo.com that took a very interesting turn can't wait to get your thoughts we'll be back on the air shortly god bless